Chapter Three, Part Two of Ecce Homo by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Antony M. Ludovici. Why I write such excellent books, Part Two. Human, all too human, one. Human, all too human, with its two sequels, is a memorial of a crisis. It is called a book for free spirits. Almost every sentence in it is the expression of a triumph. By means of it I purged myself of everything in me which was foreign to my nature. Idealism is foreign to me. The title of the book means, Where ye see ideal things, I see human, alas, all too human things. I know men better. The word free spirit in this book must not be understood as anything else than a spirit that has become free, that has once more taken possession of itself. My tone, the pitch of my voice, has completely changed. The book will be thought clever, cool, and at times both hard and scornful. A certain spirituality of noble tastes seems to be ever struggling to dominate a passionate torrent at its feet. In this respect, there is some sense in the fact that it was the hundredth anniversary of Voltaire's death that served, so to speak, as an excuse for the publication of the book as early as 1878. For Voltaire, as the opposite of everyone who wrote after him, was above all a grandee of the intellect, precisely what I am also. The name of Voltaire on one of my writings, that was verily a step forwards, in my direction. Looking into this book a little more closely, you perceive a pitiless spirit who knows all the secret hiding places in which ideals are wont to skulk. Where they find their dungeons, and as it were, their last refuge. With a torch in my hand, the light of which is not by any means a flickering one, I illuminate this nether world with beams that cut like blades. It is war, but war without powder and smoke, without warlike attitudes, without pathos and contorted limbs. All these things would still be idealism. One error after another is quietly laid upon ice. The ideal is not refuted, it freezes. Here, for instance, genius freezes. Around the corner, the saint freezes. Under a thick icicle, the hero freezes. And in the end, faith itself freezes. So-called conviction, and also pity, are considerably cooled, and almost everywhere the thing in itself is freezing to death. 2. This book was begun during the first musical festival at Bayreuth. A feeling of profound strangeness towards everything that surrounded me there is one of its first conditions. He who has any notion of the visions which even at that time had flitted across my path will be able to guess what I felt when one day I came to my senses in Bayreuth. 
it was just as if i had been dreaming where on earth was i i recognized nothing that i saw i scarcely recognized wagner it was in vain that i called up reminiscences tribschen the remote island of bliss not the shadow of a resemblance the incomparable days devoted to the laying of the first stone the small group of initiates who celebrated them and who were far from lacking fingers for the handling of delicate things not the shadow of a resemblance what had happened wagner had been translated into german the wagnerite had become master of wagner german art the german master german beer we who know only too well the kind of refined artists and cosmopolitanism in taste to which alone wagner's art can appeal were besides ourselves at the sight of wagner bedecked with german virtues i think i know the wagnerite i have experienced three generations of them from brendel of blessed memory who confounded wagner with hegel to the idealists of Bayreuth Gazette, who confounded Wagner with themselves. I have been the recipient of every kind of confession about Wagner from beautiful souls. My kingdom, for just one intelligent word. In very truth, a blood-curdling company. Noel, Pole, and Cole, and others of their kidney to infinity. Translator's footnote. Knoll and Pole were both writers on music. Cole, however, which literally means cabbage, is slang expression denoting superior nonsense. End translator's note. There was not a single abortion that was lacking among them. No, not even the anti-Semite, poor Wagner. Into whose hands had he fallen? If only he had gone into a herd of swine. But among Germans, some day, for the edification of posterity, one ought really to have a genuine Bayreuthian stuffed, or better still, preserved in spirit. For it is precisely spirit that is lacking in this quarter, with this inscription at the foot of the jar, a sample of the spirit whereon the German Empire was founded. But enough. In the middle of festivities I suddenly packed my trunk and left the place for a few weeks, despite the fact that a charming Parisian lady sought to comfort me. I excused myself to Wagner simply by means of a fatalistic telegram. In a little spot called Klingenbrunn, deeply buried in the recesses of the Böhmerwald, I carried my melancholy and my contempt for Germans about with me like an illness and from time to time, under the general title of the Plowshare, I wrote a sentence or two down in my notebooks, nothing but severe psychological stuff, which, it is possible, may have found its way into human all too human. 3. That which had taken place in me, then, was not only a breach with Wagner, I was suffering from a general aberration of my instincts, of which a mere isolated blunder, whether it were Wagner or my professorship at Bala, was nothing more than a symptom. 
I was seized with a fit of impatience with myself. I saw that it was high time that I should turn my thoughts upon my own lot. In a thrice I realized with appalling clearness how much time had already been squandered, how futile and how senseless my whole existence as a philologist appeared by the side of my life task. I was ashamed of this false modesty. Ten years were behind me, during which, to tell the truth, the nourishment of my spirit had been at a standstill, during which I had added not a single useful fragment to my knowledge, and had forgotten countless things in the pursuit of a hotchpotch of dry-as-dust scholarship. To crawl with meticulous care and short-sighted eyes through old Greek metricans, that is what I had come to. Moved to pity, I saw myself quite thin, quite emaciated. Realities were only too plainly absent from my stock of knowledge, and what the idealities were worth the devil alone knew. A positively burning thirst overcame me, and from that time forward I had done literally nothing else than study psychology, medicine, and natural science. I even returned to the actual study of history only when my life task compelled me to. It was at that time, too, that I first divined the relation between the instinctively repulsive occupation, a so-called vocation, which is the last thing to which one is called, and that need of lulling a feeling of emptiness and hunger by means of an art which is a narcotic, by means of Wagner's art, for instance. After looking carefully about me, I have discovered that a large number of young men are all in the same state of distress. One kind of unnatural practice perforce leads to another. In Germany, or rather to avoid all ambiguity in the empire, only too many are condemned to determine their choice too soon, and then to pine away beneath a burden that they can no longer throw off. Translator's footnote. Needless to say, Nietzsche distinguishes between Bismarckian Germany and that other Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and the Baltic provinces, where the German language is also spoken. End of translator's note. Such creatures crave for Wagner, as for an opate. They are thus able to forget themselves, to be rid of themselves for a moment, what, what am I saying, for five or six hours? 4. At this time my instincts turn resolutely against any further yielding or following on my part, and any further misunderstanding of myself. Every kind of life, the most unfavorable circumstances, illness, poverty, Anything seemed to me preferable to that undignified selfishness into which I had fallen. In the first place, thanks to my ignorance and youth, and in which I had afterwards remained owing to laziness, the so-called sense of duty, at this juncture there came to my help in a way that I cannot sufficiently admire, and precisely at the right time that evil heritage which I derive from my father's side of the family, and which, at bottom, is no more than a predisposition to die young. Illness slowly liberated me from the toils. 
it spared me any sort of sudden breach, any sort of a violent and offensive step. At that time I lost not a particle of the good will of others, but rather added to my store. Illness, likewise, gave me the right completely to reverse my mode of life. It not only allowed, it actually commanded me to forget. It bestowed upon me the necessity of lying still, of having leisure, of waiting, and of exercising patience. But all this means thinking. The state of my eyes alone put an end to all book wormishness, or, in plain English, philology. I was thus delivered from books. For years I ceased from reading, and this was the greatest boon I ever conferred upon myself. That nethermost self, which was, as it were, entombed, and which had grown dumb because it had been forced to listen perpetually to other selves, for that is what reading means, slowly awakened. At first it was shy and doubtful, but at last it spoke again. Never have I rejoiced more over my condition than during the sickest and most painful moments of my life. You have only to examine the dawn of day, or perhaps the wanderer and his shadow. Translator's footnote Human All to Human, Part 2, in this edition. End translator's footnote. In order to understand what this return to myself actually meant, in itself, it was the highest kind of recovery. My cure was simply the result of it. Five. Human All to Human this monument of a course of vigorous self-discipline, by means of which I put an abrupt end to all the superior bunkum, idealism, beautiful feelings, and other effeminacies that had percolated into my being, was written principally in Sorrento. It was finished and given definitive shape during a winter at Bala, under conditions far less favourable than those in Sorrento. Truth to tell, it was Peter Gast, at that time a student at the University of Bala, and a devoted friend of mine who was responsible for the book. With my head wrapped in bandages, and extremely painful, I dictated while he wrote, and corrected as he went along. To be accurate, he was the real composer, whereas I was only the author. When the completed book ultimately reached me, to the great surprise of the serious invalid I then was, I sent, among others, two copies to Byright. Thanks to a miraculous flash of intelligence on the part of chance, there reached me precisely at the same time a splendid copy of the Parseval text, with the following inscription from Wagner's pen. To his dear friend Friedrich Nietzsche, from Richard Wagner, Ecclesiastical Counselor. At this crossing of the two books I seem to hear an ominous note. Did it not sound as if two swords had crossed? At all events, we both felt this was so, for each of us remained silent. At about this time the first Bayreuth pamphlets appeared. 
and then I understood the move on my part, for which it was high time. Incredible! Wagner had become pious! 6. My attitude to myself at that time, 1876, and the unearthly certitude with which I grasped my life task, and all its world-historical consequences, is well revealed throughout the book. But more particularly, in one very significant passage, despite the fact that, with my instinctive cunning, I once more circumvented the use of the little word I, not however this time, in order to shed world-historic glory on the names of Schopenhauer and Wagner, but that on another of my friends, the excellent Dr. Paul Rhee, fortunately much too acute a creature to be deceived. Others were less subtle. Among my readers I have a number of hopeless people. The typical German professor, for instance, who can always be recognized from the fact that, judging from the passage in question, he feels compelled to regard the whole book as a sort of superior realism. As a matter of fact, it contradicts five or six of my friend's utterances. Only read the introduction to the genealogy of morals on this question. The passage above referred to reads, What, after all, is the principal axiom to which the boldest and coldest thinker, the author of the book On the Origin of Moral Sensations, read Nietzsche, the first immoralist, has attained by means of his incisive and decisive analysis of human actions. The moral man, he says, is no nearer to the intelligible, metaphysical world than the physical man, for there is no intelligible world. This theory, hardened and sharpened under the hammer-blow of historical knowledge, read the Transvaluation of All Values, may some time or other, perhaps in some future period, 1890, serve as the axe which is applied to the root of the metaphysical need of man, whether more as a blessing than a curse to the general welfare, it is not easy to say. But in any case, as a theory with the most important consequences, at once fruitful and terrible, and looking into the world with that Janus face which all great knowledge possesses. Translator's footnote. Human All Too Human, Volume 1, Aphorism 37. End translator's footnote. The Dawn of Day Thoughts about Morality as a Prejudice 1. With this book I open my campaign against morality. Not that it is at all redolent of powder. You will find quite another and much nicer smells in it, provided that you have any keenness in your nostrils. There is nothing either of light or of heavy artillery in its composition, and if its general end be a negative one, its means are not so, means out of which the end follows like a logical conclusion, not like a cannon shot. And if the reader takes leave of this book with the feeling of timid caution in regard to everything which has hitherto been honoured and even worshipped under the name of morality, 
it does not alter the fact that there is not one negative word, not one attack, and not one single piece of malice in the whole work. On the contrary, it lies in the sunshine, smooth and happy, like a marine animal basking in the sun between two rocks. For, after all, I was this marine animal. Almost every sentence in the book was thought out, or rather caught, among that medley of rocks in the neighbourhood of Genoa, where I lived quite alone and exchanged secrets with the ocean. Even to this day, when by chance I happen to turn over the leaves of this book, almost every sentence seems to me like a hook by means of which I draw something incomparable out of the depths. Its whole skin quivers with delicate shudders of recollection. This book is conspicuous for no little art in gently catching things which whisk rapidly and silently away, moments which I call godlike lizards, not with the cruelty of that young Greek god who simply transfects the poor little beast, but nevertheless with something pointed, with a pen. There are so many dawns which have not yet shed their light. This Indian maxim is written over the doorway of this book. Where does its author seek that new morning, that delicate red, as yet undiscovered, with which another day, ah, the whole series of days, a whole world of new days, will begin? In the transvaluation of all values, in an emancipation from all moral values, in a saying of yea, and in an attitude of trust to all that which hitherto has been forbidden, despised and damned. This yea-saying book projects its light, its love, its tenderness over all evil things. It restores to them their soul, their clear conscience, and their superior right and privilege to exist on earth. Morality is not assailed, it simply ceases to be considered. This book closes with the word, or? It is the only book which closes with an, or? 2. My life task is to prepare for humanity one supreme moment in which it can come to its senses, a great noon in which it will turn its gaze backwards and forwards, in which it will step from under the yoke of accident and of priests, and for the first time set the questions of the why and wherefore of humanity as a whole. This life task naturally follows out of the conviction that mankind does not get on the right road of its own accord, that it is by no means divinely ruled, but rather that it is precisely under the cover of its most holy valuations that the instinct of negation, of corruption, and of degeneration have held such a seductive sway. The question concerning the origin of moral valuations is therefore a matter of the highest importance to me, because it determines the future of mankind. The demand made upon us to believe that everything is really in the best hands, that a certain book, the Bible, gives us the definite and comforting assurance 
that there is a providence that wisely rules the fate of man when translated back into reality amounts simply to this namely the will to stifle the truth which maintains the reverse of all this which is that hitherto man has been in the worst possible hands and that he has been governed by the physiologically botched the men of cunning and burning revengefulness and the so-called saints those slanderers of the world and traducers of humanity the definite proof of the fact that the priest including the priest in disguise the philosopher has become master not only within a certain limited religious community but everywhere and that the morality of decadence the will to non-entity has become morality per se is to be found in this that altruism is now an absolute value and egotism is regarded with hostility everywhere he who disagrees with me on this point i regard as infected but all the world disagrees with me to a psychologist like antagonism between values admits of no doubt if the most insignificant organ within the body neglects however slightly to assert with absolute certainty its self-preservative powers its recuperative claims and its egotism the whole system degenerates the psychologist insists upon the removal of degenerated parts he denies all fellow feelings for such parts and has not the smallest feeling of pity for them but the desire of the priest is precisely the degeneration of the whole of mankind hence his preservation of that which is degenerate this is what his dominion costs humanity what meaning have those lying concepts whose handmaids of morality soul spirit free will god if their aim is not the physiological ruin of mankind when earnestness is diverted from the instincts that aim at self-preservation and an increase of bodily energy i e at an increase of life when anemia is raised to an ideal and the contempt of the body is construed as the salvation of the soul what is all this if it is not a recipe for decadence loss of ballast resistance offered to natural instincts selflessness in fact this is what has hitherto been known as morality with the dawn of day i first engaged in a struggle against the morality of self-renunciation joyful wisdom la gaia scienza one dawn of day is a yea saying book profound but clear and kindly the same applies once more and in the highest degree to la gaia scienza in almost every sentence of this book profundity and playfulness go gently hand in hand a verse which expresses my gratitude for the most wonderful month of january which i have ever lived the whole book is a gift sufficiently reveals the abysmal depths from which wisdom has here become joyful 
thou who with cleaving fiery lances the stream of my soul from its ice doth free till with a rush and a roar it advances to enter with glorious hoping the sea brighter to see and purer ever free in the bonds of thy sweet constraint so it praises thy wondrous endeavour january thou beauteous saint translator's note translated for joyful wisdom by paul v cohen and translator's note who can here be in any doubt as to what glorious hoping means here when he has realized the diamond beauty of the first of zarathustra's words as they appear in the glow of light at the close of the fourth book or when he reads the granite sentences at the end of the third book wherein a fate for all times is first given a formula the songs of prince free as a bird which for the most part were written in sicily remind me quite forcibly of that provincial notion of gaia scienza of that union of singer knight and free spirit which distinguishes that wonderfully early culture of the provencals from all ambiguous cultures the last poem of all to the mistral is an exuberant dance song in which if you please the new spirit dances freely upon the corpse of morality is a perfect provencalism thus spake zarathustra a book for all and none one i now wish to relate the history of zarathustra the fundamental idea of the work the eternal recurrence the highest formula of a yea saying to life that can ever be attained was first conceived in the month of august eighteen eighty one I made a note of the idea on a sheet of paper with the postscript six thousand feet beyond man and time that day i happened to be wandering through the woods alongside the lake of silver plana and i halted not far from surly beside a huge rock that towered aloft like a pyramid it was then that the thought struck me looking back now I find that exactly two months before this inspiration I had an omen of its coming in the form of a sudden and decisive change in my tastes, more particularly in music. The whole of Zarathustra might, perhaps, be classified under the rubric music. At all events, the essential condition of its production was a second birth within me of the art of hearing. In Recraro, a small mountain resort near Vicenza, where I spent the spring of 1881, I and my friend and maestro, Peter Gast, who was also one who had been born again, discovered that the phoenix music hovered over us in lighter and brighter plumage than it had ever worn before. If, therefore, I now calculated from that day forward the sudden production of the book, under the most unlikely circumstances, in February 1883. The last part, out of which I quoted a few lines in my preface, was written precisely in the hallowed hour 
when Richard Wagner gave up the ghost in Venice. I come to the conclusion that the period of gestation covered eighteen months. This period of exactly eighteen months might suggest, at least to Buddhists, that I am in reality a female elephant. The interval was devoted to the Gaia Scienza, which contains hundreds of indications of the proximity of something unparalleled, for, after all, it shows the beginning of Zarathustra, since it presents Zarathustra's fundamental thought in the last aphorism but one of the fourth book. To this interval also belongs that hymn to life, for a mixed choir and orchestra, the score of which was published in Leipzig two years ago by E. V. Fritsch, and which gave perhaps no slight indication of my spiritual state during this year, in which the essentially yea-saying pathos, which I call the tragic pathos, completely filled me heart and limb. One day people will sing it to my memory. The text, let it be well understood, as there is some misunderstanding abroad on this point, is not by me. It was the astounding inspiration of a young Russian lady, Miss Lou von Salome, with whom I was then on friendly terms. He, who is in any way able to make sense of the last words of the poem, will divine why I preferred and admired it. There is greatness in them. Pain is not regarded as an objection to existence. And if thou hast no bliss left to crown me, lead on, thou hast thy sorrow still. Maybe that my music is also great in this passage. The last note of the oboe, by the by, is C-sharp, not C. The latter is a misprint. During the following winter, I was living on that charming peaceful gulf of Rapallo, not far from Genoa, which cuts inland between Caivari and Cape Portofino. My health was not very good, the winter was cold and exceptionally rainy, and the small albergo in which I lived was so close to the water that at night my sleep was disturbed if the sea was rough. These circumstances were surely the very reverse of favourable, and yet, in spite of it all, and as if in proof of my belief that everything decisive comes to life in defiance of every obstacle, it was precisely during this winter and in the midst of these unfavourable circumstances that my Zarathustra originated. In the morning I used to start out in a southerly direction up the glorious road to Zwali, which rises up through a forest of pines and gives one a view far out to sea. In the afternoon, or as often as my health allowed, I walked round the whole bay from St. Margarita to beyond Portofino. This spot affected me all the more deeply because it was so dearly loved by the Emperor Frederick III. In the autumn of 1886, I chanced to be there again, when he was revisiting this small forgotten world of happiness for the last time. It was on these two roads that all Zarathustra came to me, above all, Zarathustra himself as a type. 
I ought rather to say that it was on these walks that he waylaid me. 2. In order to understand this type, you must first be quite clear concerning its fundamental physiological condition. This condition is what I call great healthiness. In regard to this idea, I cannot make my meaning more plain or more personal than I have already done in one of the last aphorisms, number 382, of the fifth book of the Gaia Scienza. We knew nameless and unfathomable creatures, so reads the passage, we firstlings of a future still unproved. We, who have a new end in view, also require new means to that end, that is to say, a new healthiness, a stronger, keener, tougher, bolder and merrier healthiness than any that has existed heretofore. He who longs to feel in his own soul the whole range of values and aims that have prevailed on earth until his day, and to sail around all the coasts of this ideal Mediterranean Sea, who, from the adventures of his own inmost experience, would fain know how it feels to be a conqueror and a discoverer of the ideal, as also how it is, with the artist, the saint, the legislator, the sage, the scholar, the man of piety and the godlike anchorite of yore. Such a man requires one thing above all for his purpose, and that is great healthiness. Such healthiness as he not only possesses, but also constantly acquires and must acquire, because he is continually sacrificing it again, and is compelled to sacrifice it. And now, therefore, after having been long on the way, we Argonauts of the ideal, whose pluck is greater than prudence would allow, and who are often shipwrecked and bruised, but, as I have said, healthier than people would like to admit, dangerously healthy, and forever recovering our health. It would seem as if we had before us, as a reward for all our toils, a country still undiscovered, the horizon of which no one has yet seen, a beyond to every country, and every refuge of the ideal that man has ever known, a world so overflowing with beauty, strangeness, doubt, terror, and divinity, that both our curiosity and our lust of possession are frantic with eagerness. Alas, how in the face of such vistas, and with such burning desire in our conscience and consciousness, could we still be content with the man of the present day? This is bad indeed, but that we should regard his worthiest aims and hopes with ill-concealed amusement, or perhaps give them no thought at all, is inevitable. Another ideal now leads us on, a wonderful seductive ideal, full of danger, the pursuit of which we should be loath to urge upon anyone, because we are not so ready to acknowledge anyone's right to it. The ideal of a spirit who plays ingeniously, that is to say, involuntarily, and, 
as the outcome of superabundant energy and power, with everything that hitherto has been called holy, good, inviolable, and divine, to whom even the loftiest thing that the people have with reason made their measure of value would be no better than a danger, a decay, and an abasement, or at least a relaxation and temporary forgetfulness of self. The ideal of humanly superhuman well-being and goodwill, which often enough will seem inhuman, as when, for instance, it stands beside all past earnestness on earth, and all past solemnities in hearing, speech, tone, look, morality and duty, as their most lifelike and unconscious parody, but with which, nevertheless, great earnestness, perhaps alone begins. The first note of interrogation is affixed, the fate of the soul changes, the hour hand moves, and tragedy begins. 3. Has anyone at the end of the 19th century any distinct notion of what poets of a strong age understood by the word inspiration? If not, I will describe it. If one had the smallest vestige of superstition left in one, it would hardly be possible completely to set aside the idea that one is the mere incarnation, mouthpiece or medium of an almighty power. The idea of revelation, in the sense that something which profoundly convulses and upsets one becomes suddenly visible and audible with indescribable certainty and accuracy, describes the simple fact. One hears, one does not seek, one takes, one does not ask who gives. A thought suddenly flashes up like lightning, it comes with necessity, without faltering. I have never had any choice in the matter. There is an ecstasy so great that the immense strain of it is sometimes relaxed by a flood of tears, during which one's steps now involuntarily rush and anon involuntarily lag. There is the feeling that one is utterly out of hand, with the very distinct consciousness of an endless number of fine thrills and titillations descending to one's very toes. There is a depth of happiness in which the most painful and gloomy paths do not act as antitheses to the rest, but are produced and required as necessary shades of colour in such an overflow of light. There is an instinct for rhythmic relations, which embraces a whole world of forms, length, the need of a wide embracing rhythm, is almost the measure of the force of an inspiration, a sort of counterpart to its pressure and tension. Everything happens quite involuntarily, as if, in a tempestuous outburst of freedom, of absoluteness, of power and divinity. The involuntary nature of the figures and similes is the most remarkable thing. One loses all perception of what is imagery and metaphor. 
everything seems to present itself as the readiest, the truest, and simplest means of expression. It actually seems, to use one of Zarathustra's own phrases, as if all things came to one and offered themselves as similes. Here do all things come caressingly to thy discourse and flatter thee, for they would fain ride upon thy back. On every simile thou ridest here unto every truth. Here fly open unto thee all the speech and word shrines of the world. Here would all existence become speech. Here would all becoming learn of thee how to speak. This is my experience of inspiration. I do not doubt, but that I should have to go back thousands of years before I could find another who could say to me, It is mine also. Four. For a few weeks afterwards I lay an invalid in Genoa. Then followed a melancholy spring in Rome, where I only just managed to live, and this was no easy matter. This city, which is absolutely unsuited to the poet-author of Zarathustra, and for the choice of which I was not responsible, made me inordinately miserable. I tried to leave it. I wanted to go to Aquila, the opposite of Rome in every respect and actually founded in a spirit of hostility towards that city, just as I also shall found a city some day as a memento of an atheist and a genuine enemy of the church, a person very closely related to me, the great Hohenstaufen, the emperor Frederick the Second. But fate lay behind it all. I had to return again to Rome. In the end I was obliged to be satisfied with the Piazza Barberini, after I had exerted myself in vain to find an anti-Christian quarter. I fear that on one occasion, to avoid bad smells as much as possible, I actually inquired at the Palazzo del Quirinale whether they could not provide a quiet room for a philosopher. In a chamber high above the piazza just mentioned, from which one obtained a general view of Rome, and could hear the fountains plashing far below, the loneliest of all songs was composed, the Night Song. About this time I was obsessed by an unspeakably sad melody, the refrain of which I recognize in the words, Dead Through Immortality. In the summer, finding myself once more in the sacred place where the first thought of Zarathustra flashed like a light across my mind, I conceived the second part. Ten days sufficed. Neither for the second, the first, nor the third parts have I required a day longer. In the ensuing winter, beneath the halicon sky of Nice, which then for the first time poured its light into my life, I found the third Zarathustra, and came to the end of my task. The whole having occupied me scarcely a year. Many hidden corners and heights in the country round about Nice 
are hallowed for me by moments that I can never forget. That decisive chapter entitled Old and New Tables was composed during the arduous ascent from the station to Etza, that wonderful Moorish village in the rocks. During those moments, when my creative energy flowed most plentifully, my muscular activity was always greatest. The body is inspired. Let us waive the question of soul. I might often have been seen dancing in those days, and could then walk for seven or eight hours on end over the hills without a suggestion of fatigue. I slept well, and laughed a good deal. I was perfectly robust and patient. 5. With the exception of these periods of industry lasting ten days, the years I spent during the production of Zarathustra, and thereafter, were for me years of unparalleled distress. A man pays dearly for being immortal. To this end he must die many times over during his life. There is such a thing as what I call the rancor of greatness. Everything great, whether a work or a deed, once it is completed, turns immediately against its author. The very fact that he is its author makes him weak at this time. He can no longer endure his deed. He can no longer look it full in the face. To have something at one's back, which one could never have willed, something to which the knot of human destiny is attached, and to be forced henceforth to bear it on one's shoulders? Why, it almost crushes one, the rancor of greatness! A somewhat different experience is the uncanny silence that reigns about one. Solitude has seven skins which nothing can penetrate. One goes among men, one greets friends, but these things are only new deserts. The looks of those one meets no longer bears a greeting. At the best, one encounters a sort of revolt. This feeling of revolt I suffered, in varying degrees of intensity, at the hands of almost everyone who came near me. It would seem that nothing inflicts a deeper wound than suddenly to make one's distance felt. Those noble natures are scarce who know not how to live unless they can revere. A third thing is the absurd susceptibility of the skin to small pinpricks a kind of helplessness in the presence of all small things. This seems to me a necessary outcome of the appalling expenditure of all defensive forces, which is the first condition of every creative act, of every act which proceeds from the most intimate, most secret, and most concealed recesses of a man's being. The small defensive forces are thus, as it were, suspended, and no fresh energy reaches them. I even think it probable that one does not digest so well, that one is less willing to move, and that one is much too open to sensations of coldness and suspicion. For, in a large number of cases, suspicion is merely a blunder in etiology. On one occasion, when I felt like this, 
I became conscious of the proximity of a herd of cows, some time before I could possibly have seen it with my eyes, simply owing to a return in me of milder and more humane sentiments. They communicated warmth to me. Six. This work stands alone. Do not let us mention the poets in the same breath. Nothing perhaps has ever been produced out of such a superabundance of strength. My concept, Dionysian, here became the highest deed. Compared with it, everything that other men have done seems poor and limited. The fact that a Goethe or a Shakespeare would not for an instant have known how to take breath in this atmosphere of passion and of the heights. The fact that by the side of Zarathustra, Dante is no more than a believer, and not one who first creates the truth. That is to say, not a world-ruling spirit, a fate. The fact that the poets of the Veda were priests, and not even fit to unfasten Zarathustra's sandal. All this is the least of things, and gives no idea of the distance, of the azure solitude in which this work dwells. Zarathustra has an eternal right to say, I draw around me circles and holy boundaries. Ever fewer are they that mount with me to ever loftier heights. I build me a mountain range of ever holier mountains. If all the spirit and goodness of every great soul were collected together, the whole could not create a single one of Zarathustra's discourses. The ladder upon which he rises and ascends is of boundless length. He has seen further, he has willed further, and gone further than any other man. There is contradiction in every word he utters, this most yea-saying of all spirits. Through him all contradictions are bound up into a new unity. The loftiest and the basest powers of human nature, the sweetest, the lightest, and the most terrible, rush forth from out one spring with everlasting certainty. Until his coming, no one knew what was height or depth, and still less what was truth. There is not a single passage in this revelation of truth which had already been anticipated and divined by even the greatest among men. Before Zarathustra, there was no wisdom, no probing of the soul, no art of speech. In his book, the most familiar and most vulgar thing utters unheard of words. The sentence quivers with passion. Eloquence has become music. Forks of lightning are hurled towards futures of which no one has ever dreamed before. The most powerful use of parables that has yet existed is poor beside it and mere child's play compared with this return of language to the nature of imagery. See how Zarathustra goes down from the mountain, and speaks the kindest words to everyone. 
see with what delicate fingers he touches his very adversaries the priests and how he suffers with them from themselves here at every moment man is overcome and the concept superman becomes the greatest reality out of sight almost far away beneath him lies all that which heretofore has been called great in man the halaconic brightness the light feet the presence of wickedness and exuberance throughout and all that is the essence of the type zarathustra was never dreamt of before as a prerequisite of greatness in precisely these limits of space and in this accessibility to opposites zarathustra feels himself the highest of all living things and when you hear how he defines this highest you will give up trying to find his equal the soul which hath the longest ladder and can step down deepest the vastest soul that can run and stray and row furthest in its own domain the most necessary soul that out of desire flingeth itself into chance the stable soul that plungeth into becoming the possessing soul that must needs taste of willing and longing the soul that flieth from itself and overtaketh itself in the widest circle the wisest soul that folly exhorteth most sweetly the most self-loving soul in whom all things have their rise their ebb and flow but this is the very idea of dionysus another consideration leads to this idea the psychological problem presented by the type of zarathustra is how can he who in an unprecedented manner says no and acts no in regard to all that which has been affirmed hitherto remained nevertheless a yea saying spirit how can he who bears the heaviest destiny on his shoulders and whose very life task is a fatality yet be the brightest and the most transcendental of spirits for zarathustra is a dancer how can he who has the hardest and most terrible grasp of reality and who has thought the most abysmal thoughts nevertheless avoid conceiving these things as objections to existence or even as objections to the eternal recurrence of existence how is it that on the contrary he finds reasons for being himself the eternal affirmation of all things the tremendous and unlimited saying of yea and amen into every abyss do i bear the benediction of my yea to life but this once more is precisely the idea of dionysus seven what language will such a spirit speak when he speaks unto his soul the language of the diathram i am the inventor of the diathram hearken unto the manner in which zarathustra speaks to his soul before sunrise part three 
48. Before my time, such emerald joys and divine tenderness had found no tongue. Even the profoundest melancholy of such a Dionysus takes shape as a diathram. As an example of this, I take the night song, the immortal plaint of one who, thanks to his superabundance of light and power, thanks to the sun within him, is condemned never to love. It is night. Now do all gushing springs raise their voices, and my soul too is a gushing spring. Tis night. Now only do all lovers burst into song, and my soul too is the song of a lover. Something unquenched and unquenchable is within me, that would raise its voice. A craving for love is within me, which itself speaketh the language of love. Light am I, would that I were night, but this is my loneliness, that I am brigurt with light. Alas, why am I not dark, and like unto the night? How joyfully would I then suck the breasts of light! And even you would I bless, ye twinkling starlets and glowworms on high, and be blessed in the gifts of your light. But in mine own light do I live. Ever back into myself do I drink the flames I send forth. I know not the happiness of the hand stretched forth to grasp, and oft have I dreamt that stealing must be more blessed than taking. Wretched am I, that my hand may never rest from giving. An envious fate is mine, that I see expectant eyes and nights made bright with longing. Oh, the wretchedness of all them that give! Oh, the clouds that cover the face of my son! That craving for desire, that burning hunger at the end of the feast! They take what I give them, but do I touch their soul? A gulf is there twixt giving and taking, and the smallest gulf is the last to be bridged. An appetite is born from out my beauty. Would that I might do harm to them that I fill with light. Would that I might rob them of the gifts I have given. Thus do I thirst for wickedness, to withdraw my hand, when their hand is already stretched forth like the waterfall that wavers, wavers even in its fall. Thus do I thirst for wickedness. For such vengeance doth my fullness yearn. To such tricks doth my loneliness give birth. My joy in giving died with the deed. But its very fullness did my virtue grow weary of itself. He who giveth risketh to lose his shame. He that is ever distributing groweth callous in hand and heart therefrom. My eyes no longer melt into tears at the sight of the suppliant's shame. My hand hath become too hard to feel the quivering of laden hands. Whither have you fled? 
the tears of mine eyes and the bloom of my heart oh the solitude of all givers oh the silence of all beacons many are the suns that circle in barren space to all that is dark do they speak with their light to me alone are they silent alas this is the hatred of light for that which shineth pitiless it runneth its course unfair in its inmost heart to that which shineth cold towards suns thus doth every sun go its way like a tempest do the suns fly over their course for such is their way their own unswerving will do they follow that is their coldness alas it is ye alone ye creatures of gloom ye spirits of the night that take your warmth from that which shineth ye alone suck your milk and comfort from the udders of light alas about me there is ice my hand burneth itself against ice alas within me is a thirst that thirsteth for your thirst it is night woe to me that i must needs be light and thirst after darkness and loneliness it is night now doth my longing burst forth like a spring for speech do i long it is night now do all gushing springs raise their voices and my soul too is a gushing spring it is night now only do all lovers burst into song and my soul too is the song of a lover eight such things have never been written never been felt never been suffered only a god only dionysus suffers in this way the reply to such a diathram on the sun's solitude in light would be ariadne who knows but i who ariadne is to all such riddles no one heretofore had ever found an answer i doubt even whether anyone had ever seen a riddle here one day zarathustra severely determines his life task and it is also mine let no one misunderstand its meaning it is a yea saying to the point of justifying to the point of redeeming even all that is past i walk among men as among fragments of the future of that future which i see and all my creativeness and effort is but this that i may be able to think and recast all these fragments and riddles and dismal accidents into one piece and how could i bear to be a man if man were not also a poet a riddle reader and a redeemer of chance to redeem all the past and transform every it was into thus would i have it that alone would be my salvation in another passage he defines as strictly as possible what to him alone man can be not a subject for love nor yet 
for pity. Zarathustra became master even of his loathing of man. Man is to him a thing unshaped, raw material, an ugly stone that needs a sculptor's chisel. No longer to will, no longer to value, no longer to create. Oh, that this great weariness may never be mine. Even in the lust of knowledge, I feel only the joy of my will to beget and to grow. And if there be innocence in my knowledge, it is because my procreative will is in it. Away from God and gods did this will allure me. What would there be to create if there were gods? But to man doth it ever drive me anew, my burning creative will. Thus driveth it the hammer to the stone. Alas, ye men, within the stone there sleepeth an image for me, the image of all my dreams. Alas, that it should have to sleep in the hardest and ugliest stone. Now rageth my hammer ruthlessly against its prison. From the stone the fragments fly. What's that to me? I will finish it. For a shadow came unto me, the stillest and lightest thing on earth once came unto me. The beauty of the superman came unto me as a shadow. Alas, my brethren, what are the gods to me now? Let me call attention to one last point of view. The line in italics is my pretext for this remark. Narrator's Note the line reads, Now rageth my hammer ruthlessly against its prison. End narrator's note. A Dionysian life task needs the hardness of the hammer, and one of its first essentials is without doubt the joy even of destruction, the command, harden yourselves, and the deep conviction that all creators are hard is the really distinctive sign of a Dionysian nature. End of Why I Write Such Excellent Books, Part 2